Welcome to the Unstoppable Recording Machine Podcast. And now your host, Al Levy. Welcome to the URM Podcast. Thank you so much for being here. It's crazy to think that we are now on our seventh year. Don't ask me how that all just flew by, but it did. Man, time moves fast. And it's only because of you, the listeners. If you'd like us to stick around another seven years, and there's a few simple things you can do that would really, really help us out. I would endlessly appreciate if you would, number one, share our episodes with your friends. Number two, post our episodes on your Facebook and Instagram and tag me at URM Audio and at URM Academy and, of course, our guest. And number three, leave us reviews and five-star reviews wherever you can. We especially love iTunes reviews. Once again... Thank you for all the years and years of loyalty. I just want you to know that we will never charge you for this podcast, and I will always work as hard as possible to improve the episodes in every single way. All we ask in return is a share, a post, and tag us. Oh, and one last thing. Do you have a question you would like me to answer on an episode? I don't mean for a guest. I mean for me. It can be about anything. Email it to me at al at urm.academy. That's E-Y-A-L at U-R-M dot A-C-A-D-E-M-Y. There's no dot com on that. It's exactly the way I spelled it. And use the subject line, answer me al. All right, let's get on with it. Hello, everybody. Welcome to the URM podcast. My guest today is Ansi Kipo, who is a producer, mixer, live engineer, blogger, educator, and musician who owns and operates Astia Studios in southern Finland. And he's a platinum-selling music producer who's been at the heart of tons of incredible albums, including three Children of Bodom albums and various songs and EPs through the years. And, I mean, he's worked on hundreds and hundreds of of records. And even though he has a deep knowledge of digital recording, he has been beating the drum of exclusively analog production for quite some time by moving over to magnetic tape recording and even participating in research with the local university on the sound differences between analog and digital. This is a great episode. I hope you enjoy it. Here goes. Ansi Kipo. Welcome to the URM podcast. Thank you very much. Pleasure to have you here. Pleasure to be here. Thanks. So just out of curiosity, because I know that you are very much still in the analog domain, was it harder for you to do work during you know the past year and a half? Uh, yeah, the uh, situation has been quite complicated, I think, on no matter what platform you work, especially as I've had clients coming to me for sessions from all over the world. And since now you can travel, I've had to rely on the local musicians only. Which is kind of a change, right? Uh, yeah. Then again, it's, it's pretty cool also that way. But then again, you can definitely feel the change. It seems like it's probably starting to go back to normal, right? Uh, yeah, but let's see how it goes, because a couple of busloads of Finnish people went to see some football in the Russian side, and now we have the Delta Delta uh, version uh, going oh, on God. in Finland, so we don't know what's, how it will be. Yeah, okay, so dealing with people that are geographically near you sounds like a uh, like a good solution, but what about 
with mixing projects, for instance, how would you go about handling that? I've had a very strict policy because in 2017, I made the transition from digital recording to analog recording only. And since that, I haven't accepted any files for mixing. Every, every two weeks, I get, get a request. Bands ask for a quote for an album mix. And I, unfortunately, I have to tell them that I can't. <laughs> I can't do that anymore. But they are very welcome welcome to me for a tape session. That's what I was curious about, because I know that you made that transition. And I think it's very interesting that you made that transition, because, you know, most people go the other way. Yeah, I did too. I started recording in 93. I started with the full analog tape machine and then from uh, upgraded to ADAT system, which is digital tape, and then to DAW. And after years of comparison, I just couldn't go on with uh, digital recording anymore. And I had to make the transition. Why not? I can definitely hear the quality. And yeah, because I didn't feel the music. I thought there was something wrong with me. And I couldn't feel any emotion. I was listening my listening to my favorite music from the teenage years, and I still couldn't feel anything. And like everyone else, I was blaming myself that I've become so emotionless and cold, and nothing kind of touches me anymore. And once once I started studying the differences between the analog and digital, and especially the full analog signal chain, then all the emotions came back again. And I felt like a little child again who first time hears the music in the... Like like we heard the music when we were kids. This is a very interesting topic to me because, um, you know, people feel very differently about it. Um, There's very strong opinions. And I think that people on both sides have great arguments. And for me, after, you know, speaking to hundreds of people about this and also doing my own productions... uh, I've come to the conclusion that overall, the most important thing is that people work on the system that allows them to do their best work. Like whatever it is that makes them feel the music the most and really get into it the most, that's the best. And so if that's all analog, great. If it's all digital, great. But what really, really matters is that you're working in an environment that allows you to do your best work, in my opinion. That's words of wisdom. So do you think that's kind of what it is? It's just there's something about the analog process that unlocks your creativity? Can be that as well, but it makes you, or it makes me feel music more. It's not only that I hear it, but I sense it kind of within my body. And it's it's kind of the bodily sensation alongside with what you hear. I had this uh, really awesome producer named Josh Schroeder on Nail the Mix back in February. And uh, he's a very creative guy. And uh, he does a hybrid, but he's very much into using analog systems for many things. And his philosophy on it is uh, one that I agree with. I've just never heard anybody else say it. I'm curious what you think. Uh, He said that the reason that he uses the analog stuff is not because he personally thinks that it sounds better or worse. It's not that. But what it does is the actual process of using it engages his brain in a different way, um, and he makes different types of decisions based on, you know, how you actually work with the gear. So the decisions that he would make, you know, if he was messing with a plug-in, would be very, very different than the process of uh, 
messing with knobs and plugging things in. And he says that the 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 way that he feels the music, like you said, and the way that he thinks about the music is so much more creative when and so much more emotional when he's doing it with actual gear that that's why he does it. Not because he feels like one sounds better, but at the end of the day, he feels like it ends up sounding better because it allows him to make better decisions. Hmm. I can very, very easily relate to that because you have a totally different approach. In the digital domain, you can do almost anything. You have so many options, but when you work with analog gear, you don't have that many options. It's kind of, uh, your options are so limited that it makes the working pretty easy. You can do this, you can do that. And then instead of uh, endless uh, editing and endless uh, vocal tuning and endless copy pasting, we end up getting the energy right and kind of concentrating on moving people. Like when, when, when people listen to the music, they start, they, they can't help it. They just have to start moving because there's something that grabs them. Where do you think that comes from? I think there's something in the analog, which kind of is not within the hearing range, but it's within the feeling range. Okay, that makes sense to me. If the difference was in the hearing range, we would have found it already, but there is no difference in, in that specific Area, but then again, I don't know if you have the heat wave over there. We have a huge heat wave in Finland. We we are used to almost <laughs> partying with the polar bears, and now we have like extreme heat. It's like in in Texas. It's actually the opposite here. It's been a cool summer, strangely Whoa. enough. Okay, so here here is like way too hot for the Finnish people to handle it. And if we talk about the weather, and if we only say that it's like it doesn't matter if it's Celsius or Fahrenheit, but if we say the temperature, we don't know if it's this temperature, but it feels like another temperature, which is pretty common in here. Uh, how moist it is? Is it raining or is it sunshine? Uh, and I often uh, describe that the hearing range frequencies, it's like the temperature. It's needed, but then there are so many more, uh, kind of more uh, things you need to kind of, you have in the sound, which, uh, yeah, kind of digital is kind of not focusing on (laughs) or allowing to come through maybe. Maybe not capable of reproducing it. Yeah, because we cut out uh, everything above and below the hearing range. So those elements that you're talking about that are in the feeling range, because you can't actually hear them, what are you relying on to know that they're there? Bodily sensations, as simple as that. And do you find that your clients respond as well? 100%. Okay. I'm teaching them this way of kind of, well, I can't say it's a new way of listening to music, but it's kind of put the focus over there and, and, and check this out. And it's pretty easy to help people notice these things. And I'm doing research with the local university. Uh, the professors asked me to give not a lecture, but kind of a demonstration at the university. I went there and did two a uh, couple of hour uh, demonstration sets. And since then, they've been <laughs> kind of visiting me pretty frequently. It's pretty interesting stuff. I hope we can get some papers released soon. Could you tell me a little bit about what goes into that or what's the purpose of these uh, lectures? Well, what are you trying to get through to the students? I'm showing this uh, difference between the analog and digital. Got it. <laughs> and this is the hot topic. And the, there's, as you said, there's so many uh, kind of against and, and with. And I, I go there and I, I show 
some uh, examples and then we discuss why is it so. You know, one thing also that I feel that older records had that got lost for a while, and actually I, I know that now uh, there are ways that producers will bring this back, but one thing that I felt was part of why records were great pre-digital was the timing. Uh, they weren't playing to a grid, and so maybe they played to a metronome sometimes, but in general it was free. And, um, and because of that, the music, the tempo and the feel would adjust properly to the way it was supposed to be. And um, like a great example, I don't know if you like this band or not, but a great example in my opinion is uh, the first Slipknot record, which is all over the place timing-wise, but it's a huge, huge record. It connected with millions of people. And I really do think that one of the reasons is because the timing on it adjusts itself per part. Like it's all, it's when the energy needs to go up, you can tell that uh, Joey Jordison is rushing the beat and uh, rushing his fills. And it's something that, you know, if you're playing to a grid, people would edit that or would make the drummer redo it. But there was something in, in that feel that just made it sound like it was exploding. And lots of older records have that. Now, uh, nowadays, w I know that what lots of producers will do is, for instance, um, if the drummer is good enough, of course, will record um, without a click and then they will conform the click inside of the DAW to the performance. Um, so that they can still, you know, get their delays on time and still easily, easily work within the DAW. But instead of conforming the drummer to the click, they conform the click to the drummer. Yeah. And in an effort to bring that back. And it's, it works pretty successfully for some people. Totally understand. And uh, that's one of the topics which I write on my blog about if, if when you are using a click track, the drummer is tied to the click track and that kind of takes away the energy and I think that's a very very good example the Sleep Not album and one uh, also pretty good example is uh, Pantera if you listen oh, yeah, Walk yeah, yeah, absolutely. and check, check out Walk especially the solo part it's definitely everything else except it's on, on, on the beat and still it sounds purely awesome because the drums just like they flow and they every, every drum feel is a little bit too fast or a little bit too slow and it's kind of completely off the click it comes down to the human factor which is polished away on the uh, now albums that or recordings that are done nowadays and on the older albums you could not polish it away and that was part of the kind of uh, that's so cool to hear that it's human playing now when everything's like perfect in pitch perfect in uh, time it doesn't sound human it's the uncanny valley <laughs> once again i do think though there are some genres of music where that's the goal artistically some electronic music for instance needs to sound like it's not a human And that's what makes it work. But for music that is supposed to sound like humans played it, that has like human energy, you're taking away something very vital to it by making it sound like a machine. But I can tell you, man, I, I really do think that what happened was that the digital technology came out and people jumped on it and overdid it. So it's kind of like when you get a guitar player in a band 
who buys, you know, the Digitech whammy pedal, and then they try to put it in every single song. <laughs> Instead of the one song on the album that could really use it, they try to put it every single place because it's a new toy and they're going nuts with it. So, and I, so I believe that overall, if you, if you look at metal producers as one big collective unconscious organism, I think that they did that on a grand scale with feel. Uh, they got these new toys and just went nuts. And I think that there's been a backlash against that. And so many, many people are trying to find a way to keep things modern, but to bring back those old things that were lost, like feel. I see a lot of people focusing on that these days. Yeah, that's totally correct. And for example, when, when I was recording the first Children of Burum album, uh, we didn't use any click track. And there's a huge amount of energy, like everything is flowing and going faster and slower and all over the place. But still the energy is coming through. Uh, then again, on the, on the second album, I forced the drummer Jaska Raatikainen to play uh, to a click track. And that's much more, yeah, it's more strict and we, we got uh, stuff more solid when it comes to kind of how tight they played. But then again, I think some, something was lost. Did they feel like something was lost? Uh, I, I feel now that something was lost. Back then we were, of course, excited about that. <laughs> okay, so it's kind of what I was saying is this new this new thing. So people get excited by it. And in some ways, man, I don't think that that's a bad thing to get excited by learning how to do something new and then using it. I mean, that's how you get better. But at some point, once it's not new to you anymore, you need to step back and think... How much of this do I really need? Like, did this improve my work? Did it detract from my work? Or is there something about it that's useful that I can use when necessary and other times where I shouldn't use this tool? Exactly. Because we always, what is the most important part is the song. And we always need to listen to the song, what the song tells us. Does it need this? Is it, is it good for the song? Is it making it better? Many times we can put a lot of harmony parts and uh, kind of uh, doublings and uh, whatnot to triple all the parts. But then again, is it necessarily needed? And are we putting that stuff there only because we can or only because the song must have it? And is that also something that you go via bodily or emotional sensation like how like how does that process happen for you the the decision if the decision to use a tool or not use a tool or to decide it needs this well uh, i don't know how other people approach it but my uh, approach on many things is most likely a little bit, little bit different and uh, my goal is the kind of to get in the flow state of mind or you can call it zen i usually don't know how things are happening because I'm I'm in a kind of not not in a trance but kind of going by the with the flow and kind of because I know my gear inside out so sometimes I just see that stuff is happening I'm plugging this there I'm doing doing it like this and I have no idea why but it sounds awesome <laughs> and also when we are adding for example a harmony part we can easily record the harmony part then we listen with And then we listen without. If the song tells us that this part is needed, it's a vital part of the song, then we will keep it. Uh, if it sounds like, yeah, so-and-so, it could be there or not, then we delete it. It's very simple. So if it's a maybe, it's a no. It has to be a definitely fuck yes. Exactly. On everything we do. I think that's a good philosophy. It's a, 
you know, different different field, but a friend of mine who worked in counterterrorism in the field, he said to me that their operating philosophy was if there is a question, there is no question. <laughs> and uh, obviously different kind of work, but it sounds to me like it's the same thing. If there's a question about this part, no question. Exactly. Don't keep it. Exactly. Very simple. And the more simple we make our workflow and everything related to recording, mixing, mastering, I think the better it gets. So you spoke about knowing your, your tools inside and out. And correct me if I'm wrong, but it sounds to me like you think it's more important to, no matter how much gear you have, that the gear that you do have, that you are completely intimate with it. Rather than having eight million different options that you kind of know how to use, take what you do have and learn the absolute shit out of it. Exactly. You don't even need that much gear. And you just know what works and what doesn't work. It takes years or even decades to kind of use stuff in the in different situations. And then you start understanding the character, how they work. Then it's very easy. Just like this part must have this kind of character. So I will go with this microphone or this compressor or do this kind of trick to make it make it work. Yeah. And this is true for writing music also, I think, and playing music that, or really anything creative. I think that having limitations forces us to be creative. Exactly. Too many options actually isn't necessarily a great thing. You're laughing. <laughs> Why? I totally agree. When you have kind of gazillion plugins and uh, only to choose which to use will take so much time. But when you have like a handful of compressors, you can try them out and it only takes like a minute or two and then you're done. And uh, yeah, the more limitations you have, more creative you need to be and more faster the work gets and you get kind of, uh, you don't get kind of sidelined, how, how you say it when, when the gear... Yeah, sidelined, yeah. It will take like so much time. And for example, when I was still working on the digital, the normal album session would be one month or two months. Nowadays, the normal album session, including recording, mixing, mastering, is like 10 days. Wow, that's fast. Yeah. Back in the days when I still accepted files for mixing, it was usually one full day to make mixing for one song. Nowadays, it's a full album mix is going to take two days. And previous session, I was uh, mixing five songs in 11 hours. And a couple of weeks ago, we did a black metal album. It was eight very long songs, and it was like one and a half days, approximately, maximum two days. That's interesting. You know, you mentioned in the pre-interview that your production time with analog is several times faster than with digital, which is actually the opposite of what most people say or Whoa. think. <laughs> Look, most people say that the reason that they switched to digital is speed because the requirements from labels and the speed at which people need things now is so fast that um, they felt that analog was slowing them down. So what I'm curious about is what about analog helps you speed up? Because it's a very, I've never heard someone say that. <laughs> cool. Yeah. Because uh, 
every single session that I've done is super fast. And we concentrate on the pre-production. If there are some, if if something is not correct, uh, we will fix it before the band enters the studio. I, I will be listening the live recording from the rehearsal place and giving them instructions. Hey, pay attention to this one, this particular thing, or uh, the tempo needs to be slower here. Whatever it takes. And when the band enters the studio, they are completely ready. And then we just kind of concentrate on logging in to get the groove right. And yeah, stuff is super fast to do. I guess there's not much fucking around. Uh, we do have time to uh, for laughs and uh, pull out jokes as we did. <laughs> We've been do- always have been doing. But then again, if you consider the time spent on combining the takes, checking the cut between the two takes to make it combine them, making the crossfades, doing the copy paste, uh, kind of uh, putting the drums on grid, uh, cleaning up the tom tracks, I don't have any of that. And that's what takes a lot of time. Okay, so you don't do those things. The bands that come to you, though, do they care? When it's the first season, they're a little bit scared how they can to do any, any music. When you can't edit, when you can't tune the vocals. When they come for the second season, they have none of the fears. <laughs> because they, they understand how it is. And for example, uh, many people think that, especially modern metal, you can't record it on tape because it needs the drum samples, it needs the vocal tuning, it, it needs the... Uh, modeled uh, guitar amps and whatnot. Uh, on January, I did uh, an EP with a band that plays modern metal and on tape, full analog session, and they were totally blown away and definitely are coming back for, for more. So do you think that the modern metal sound is more about understanding how to dial that in rather than dependent on which tools you use? Uh, I don't think I I can answer the question because I don't listen to any any modern metal. So, <laughs> well, I mean, you <laughs> listen to the mo- the modern metal you record. <laughs> yeah, well, um, the, the, to me that sounded sounded great, and uh, the the guys had a huge kind of um, um, how how would you say they they just kind of they were blown away how easy it was to record on uh, tape instead of computer. And they had the drum technician with them who who was a recording engineer. And during that session, uh, he quit, all, he, like me, he, he quit the digital recording and bought a tape machine. He's the second uh, sound engineer who has visited me and done, done the same. Wow, you just don't hear this very often anymore. So, all right, so then there, here's another thing that lots of people say, and which you said the opposite of. People often think of tape as being significantly more expensive to work with, um, but you are actually able to save a ton of money on sessions with tape. Exactly. How are you able to make that economical and accessible to modern bands or artists that don't have insane budgets? I mean, look, I can tell you that even getting some bands to buy a set of drum heads for every song or whatever can be a challenge with some bands, uh, let alone tape. So I'm just wondering, how do you make that more economical? Well, if buying drum heads is a huge obstacle, maybe, maybe those guys need to consider another hobby. Okay, fair enough. Maybe they are not meant to be musicians. I, I think there are no obstacles 
when you want something and when you know how to, how to get it. And for example, I had a band from uh, coming in all the way from Texas to uh, Finland in the middle of winter to make a recording of their uh, recording, mixing and mastering for the album. And uh, yeah, the distance wasn't that uh, that big of a deal for them. I've, I've had bands contacting me and saying that, oh, you, you live 20 miles from us. That's too far. We will go to the locals. <laughs> so it, it all depends. I, I agree with you that if you want something, there should be no obstacles. Yeah. It's uh, a... I feel like um, if you really, really want something, you'll do anything. Exactly. Anything needed. Anything needed. And the the bands who I work with, uh, of course, they understand that tape is expensive and they don't want to spend a lot of lot of money on tape, especially on uh, extra tape. So we will we will kind of use as little tape as possible. But then again, uh, they they've also experienced the mixing for two months getting the mix uh, version 11 and still being not satisfied with the result. And it takes a long time. Someone has to pay. And that's also kind of uh, when we do the tape season, it's fast. And during the, I would say, three or four years already, uh, every single time, without any exceptions, version number one has been accepted About the, when we, we talk about mix. So then the way that you make it more economical is by the speed at which you work. Yeah, exactly. It's fast and we don't need to make tons of mixing revisions because mix number one is going to be the final, which is sounds maybe a little bit strange, but that's how it's been. That makes sense. Now, as I'm sure you've noticed, there's a lot more people getting into production now than ever before. It's prohibitively expensive for some people to learn on tape, at least at first. Um, so it just makes sense if you think about it. A teenager who doesn't have money of their own, who wants to get into production, the most simple thing that they can possibly do at first is to get something like, you know, Reaper that's free and a cheap interface and some amp sims and just start doing that. And I'm not judging it. I just am acknowledging that it's the path of least resistance for many young people. Uh, so what I'm wondering, in your opinion, someone who starts that way, which is almost everybody these days, how do they go about transitioning to a more analog approach? Um, I'm... As I mentioned, I've read the blog, which has like on the best week 5,000 readers. Your blog is great, by the way. Oh, thank you very much. And uh, since the COVID-19, I made a transition to Finnish blog posts only. So I hope at some point when the borders are opened, I will translate the newer posts also on English. And there will be a separate blog posts about these two guys who made the transition. And they both are so young that they haven't had any previous experience with the analog tape. They've started with the digital systems. That's a very good question. I need to ask them how they feel about the whole situation. But then again, as they visited me for a session and they saw how fast the process is and they saw how little processing is needed for the tracks. Like, for example, uh, yesterday morning I completed the mixing for last song for the uh, session we did. And on the mixing console, I only had EQ on the vocals. Wow. And on bass drum and snare, uh, parallel compressed tracks. That's all, all the EQ I, I used. And is that because 
you did the heavy lifting during tracking? During tracking, there was no EQ on bass, no EQ on guitar. Uh, but I mean, you dialed the sound exactly the way you wanted in production, so it didn't need more, right? Yes, because with tape you have limitations. If you know that you want to have a bright guitar, why would you record a dark one? And we, uh, my kind of way of working, even during the uh, digital recording era, was that we, we would only record when the sound would be kind of as final as possible, like listening to the album. And every single band who came to me for recording, they, they loved the approach because it's not like, oh, now it sounds like crap and it will change in the, during mixing. But then again, it will change to what? How, how will the frequencies react together? How it will be? And uh, I started at very, very early age, I started recording as final sound as possible. And kind of throughout the recording process, we are hearing 95% the final mix which makes things faster. It's every single band loves that approach. When we had uh, Tom Lord Algae on Now the Mix, uh, he presented a, a term that I've never heard of. And he said documents. And he considers a lot of modern recording to be documents. And I was like, what do you mean by documents? And he said that what he means by documents is that people will give you these sounds that are completely they have nothing on them they're just they're just the most basic recording ever and they expect you to then turn them into something else in the mix and that bothers the shit out of him uh he he really really thought that it was better when the sound would be created in the production and then that informs the way that the mix is supposed to go as opposed to getting a series of documents that he then has to interpret <laughs> yeah that, that, that's very uh, he describes the situation very well <laughs> i thought that that was an interesting way to call it yeah that's so common that with this i do not mean to push anyone down or be uh, judge anyone but the younger uh, generation recording engineers think that they can record anything and it can be fixed in the mix but then again if we go back to the golden 80s or even 90s when the sound was like super good and uh, on, on the big rock albums for example and uh, the bands chose the studio which had the recording engineer who knew the equipment like inside out. And they didn't go there to get as neutral sound as possible. They didn't go there to color this recording as little as you can. But the uh, total opposite. They went there. They wanted the drum room. They wanted the dude to do the what he does the best and kind of tweak the amp to make it, make it sound like he did on the albums which led the band to him. It's a different way of working. I think also though, and this is probably important, in earlier time periods, uh, musicians didn't typically have a way to make things sound at least decent. You know, in the 90s, what would people record their demos on? It would be like a cassette four track or put a Walkman in the middle of the room and hit record. And so demos sounded like shit always. And so they would have to go to a studio to even make them sound remotely like music. Whereas I think that now it's very easy to make something sound at least mediocre, you know, <laughs> at least decent, at least sound like a, like you can tell what's going on, you know? Uh, it's, it's very, it's very simple to do that. And 
lots of uh, lots of people who are first starting they learn how to do this almost immediately, and so I think that that changes the expectation of what they want out of a producer to a degree. I'm wondering, so when you are dealing with that resistance initially, when a band comes in who is used to the uh, modern way of doing things, uh, like you said that, yeah, at first they're scared, by the second session they're not. But uh, how do you approach it? Like, how do you approach them in a communication style, with your communication style, to help them feel more at ease with the situation? Or how, how do you approach getting them to go along with your way of doing things in order to help them be more comfortable? That's a very good question. I have several blog posts at the moment only in Finnish language uh, where, we, for example, we go through a tape session step by step. And it, it's, it has lots of comments from the bands who have experienced it. And all, all the musicians say that, oh, we, this was our expectation, but this was the reality. And uh, th- this is how much time we used to spend on mixing. And this was how, how it was done at Astia. And I, I sent links to the bands who contact me that, hey, go, go read this stuff. Because it's explained from kind of like with easy steps. And they, they will understand better what to expect and how how things are going to be and do they actually read it yeah that's amazing (laughs) the 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 blog has opened a lot of doors and uh, yeah people seem to love it and uh, my blog posts are not not short and they are not easy to read they they kind of they are a little bit more demanding which i like if if it's too complicated for someone i I think they (laughs) they they can go to someplace else (laughs) Well, I, I, the reason I was asking if they actually read is because I've noticed that people these days don't read much. Yeah. So the fact that you have a, bl- a written blog that people actually read is in and of itself kind of amazing. <laughs> yeah, that, that, that's cool. And uh, like, for example, today, this morning, I released uh, latest blog posts uh, about locking in this magical moment when every single note is um, to a millisecond. On, on correct time and yeah it, it can't be explained kind of very easily but uh, I gave it a shot and I have lots of comments from the musicians who I've done sessions with and they try to kind of open up this kind of locking in which most musicians say oh of course we know know that but they, no it's not the re- not the reality if you would know it then the recorded music would sound a lot better and there is a way to get the musician to play so that every note is to a millisecond, millisecondly correct to the kind of backing track. Let's talk about that for a second, because can't just bring that up and then not talk about it. Because this is uh, something that people will do inside the DAW, you know, when they're, for instance, lining up samples to, to the drum. You know, they get down there to the milliseconds to line things up and their uh, editing, will people will look in the milliseconds and... It's usually something that's thought of as something you do after the performance to fix things up. Um, How do you approach it when you're not doing that stuff? How can you even tell? Well, for some reason, I'm very sensitive to sense 
things. And uh, in 2002, when I was producing and recording Children of Boredom album Hate Crew Death Roll, that was the album which got Alexi Laiho, the guitar player and vocalist, nominated as the best guitar player in the world on several uh, kind of like mostly all over the world. And the way it was the first Boredom album which was recorded on DAW. And even though we recorded on DAW, we did not use any editing. And we used it like a tape machine. We just recorded, recorded, recorded until it was right. And uh, that kind of, um, at the time, the band members sometimes even got pretty angry. Like, isn't it good enough? And I, I told them no. And l- later on, I have understood that I was all the time after the locking in. And that's which kind of raises the hair uh, on your body up and makes the uh, kind of, it sounds magical when it happens. And now as I've kind of started to understand the phenomenon more, I teach it to every band who visits me. If it's one day session, usually we we don't have the time to kind of go pretty deeply into it. But when it's a 10 day album session, then basically if it's a decent musician, it can be kind of he or she can learn the locking in and yeah we get pretty pretty amazing results <laughs> because there there is no editing involved on a tape machine so we need to kind of find better ways of making things sound as tight as possible and that's the ultimate way of sounding as tight as possible you have to have really good musicians i think actually no no you you, you can okay. even have a beginner if uh, they are kind of able to relax if they know their parts, if the musician if the musician doesn't know their parts, then it's impossible because they will make lots of mistakes and the magic won't happen. And that's also on my uh, one of the blog posts about the uh, tape recording myths. Uh, you don't have to be a world class musician to record on on tape because with tape there is actually this kind of fixing factor which I can't explain. But as I've recorded. Uh, dozens and dozens and dozens of times the same take when the band is playing live, singing live, all, all live. And I've recorded uh, recorded it on the digital and on tape. And when we compare uh, on on the DAW recording, the drummer tells me, those two bass drum hits, you need to either move them or we need to record again. The guitar and bass player uh, tell me that there are a couple of uh, chords which are not in sync. And we need to either copy and copy paste or we need to record again. The vocalist tells me the notes which he wants to be out. But then again, when we listen the very same take on tape, from tape, uh, the drummer tells me that, oh, the, I, I can't find the bass drum hits which uh, had some timing issues. The guitar and bass player are saying exactly the same, like, hey, it sounds like it's totally correct. And the vocalist tells me that we are not recording, definitely not recording the vocals again because it sounds perfect in tu- perfectly in tune. And when it repeats and it repeats and it doesn't matter which band uh, I, I try it and we get the same result, it's kind of, there's something on the uh, analog tape which is forgiving. Do you think also it has something to do with you knowing how to communicate with these musicians in a way that facilitates them doing their best? But it's the same take and on different, different medias, it sounds different. So Fair enough. it can't be placebo and it can't be that I'm so good brainwashing people that they, they start believing that tape is better. <laughs> because that's just facts. When, when I show this to people and when it's kind of repetitive, then it tells that there's something, something there. Interesting because, you know, there's this idea out there that 
ears and hands, for instance, are much more important than gear. You know, like when you think about guitar players, we know that put two different guitar players on the same rig and it's going to sound completely different. You put two different drummers on the same setup, it's going to sound completely, completely different. And so based on that, you know, because like I remember this one session I did many years ago where there was a big band who had booked the studio and the drum session just went long. The drummer needed more time. And there was another band that came in that was also already booked. We had a conflict. And so the way we worked it out was that the drummer from the bigger band allowed the other drummer to use his setup as long as nothing was moved. So same microphones, same everything. Sounded completely, completely different. Based on that and, uh, you know, the guitar example, I, I've noticed that one of the biggest factors is more so than any gear I've ever used is who it is that I'm recording. Do you think that that's true? Completely, completely true. I've done a YouTube video with uh, pretty good drummers, like the top drummers of, in Finland, and uh, we use the same drum set. Nothing is changed except the drummer. And yeah, they sound completely different, not only groove-wise, but also the sound changes a lot, even though there was not, nothing was changed in the tuning or in the settings. It's almost like every step of the process, which decision you make about who's playing, <laughs> how you're recording it, all those things, all of those make the biggest differences in the world. But I guess what I'm wondering is when it comes down to it, what do you think is more important? The recording medium or the person you're recording? It a little bit de depends. The person you are recording is definitely the biggest factor. But then again, if um, if you want to capture more than meets the ear, then uh, I think the medium plays a big part too. Because like if you play like Daron Malakian with your eyes like plates and uh, you are not blinking at all, and if you capture it on on DAW, it sounds like uh, yeah, quite okay. If you capture the same take on tape, it gives you chills. Then again, I think I think they both play an important role. Okay. Hey, everybody. If you're enjoying this podcast, then you should know that it's brought to you by URM Academy. URM Academy's mission is to create the next generation of audio professionals by giving them the inspiration and information to hone their craft and build a career doing what they love. You've probably heard me talk about Nail the Mix before, and if you're a member, you already know how amazing it is. At the beginning of the month, Nail the Mix members get the raw multitracks to a new song by artists like Lamb of God, Angels and Airwaves, Knock Loose, Opeth, Meshuga, Bring Me the Horizon, Gojira, Asking Alexandria, Machine Head, and Papa Roach, among many, many others. Over 60 at this point. Then at the end of the month, the producer who mixed it comes on and does a live streaming walkthrough of exactly how they mix the song on the album and takes your questions live on air. And these are guys like TLA, Will Putney, Jens Bogren, Dan Lancaster, Tui Madsen, Andrew Wade, and many, many more. You'll also get access to MixLab, which is our collection of dozens of bite-sized mixing tutorials that cover all the basics, as well as Portfolio Builder, which is a library of pro-quality multitracks cleared for use in your portfolio so your career will never again be held back by the quality of your source material. And for those of you who really want to step up their game, we have another membership tier called URM Enhance, which includes 
everything I already told you about and access to our massive library of fast tracks, which are deep, super detailed courses on intermediate and advanced topics like gain staging, mastering, low end, and so forth. It's over 500 hours of content, and man, let me tell you, this stuff is just insanely detailed. Enhanced members also get access to one-on-ones, which are basically office hour sessions with us, and Mix Rescue, which is where we open up one of your mixes and fix it up and talk you through exactly what we're doing at every step. So if any of that sounds interesting to you, if you're ready to level up your mixing skills in your audio career, head over to urm.academy to find out more. What are some of the other things that you think are crucial to doing this correctly? So you definitely think that the tape approach just is just superior for all the reasons that you outlined. You think that the right player is crucial. What are the other crucial elements in your opinion? Uh, I think locking in and groove. If the band is not locking in, if the groove is not right, then yeah, it's difficult to make it work. Because even early on, like I don't know, 15, 20 years ago, I started noticing that when when a band, when when the musicians play super tight together, when, when they are locking in, it kind of improves the sound. When I played them the recording, uh, we, which the locking in was happening, like everything was kind of super tightly played together. Uh, everyone said, oh, this sounds so cool. And then when I played more sloppy playing and people st- uh, told me that this, this doesn't sound correct. So kind of uh, if you want to improve the sound, then uh, you should make the groove and the timing of the musicians as good as possible. And the best option for that is to make it not by editing, but by playing it until it sounds right. Now, how do you get that without a drummer playing to a click? Easily. I have on Sunday, I have a session starting where the band uh, demands that they, they get to play to a click track and they are super good professional musicians. So we will record to a click track. Other than that, I've only done one song during the past four years where we have used a click track. Okay, first of all, this is so (laughs) interesting because I'm sure you remember that once upon a time, many years ago, getting a drummer to use a click was the challenge. Exactly. Most drummers were afraid of it (laughs) and they wouldn't... Man, I remember when I was putting my band together... Uh, I needed a drummer that could play to a click because we had backing tracks, you know, like synths and orchestra and all this stuff that was programmed. And we didn't, you know, we didn't, we couldn't take an orchestra with us on tour. So we had backing tracks and we needed a drummer who could, uh, we, you know, we also had lights uh, at one point that were completely synced to MIDI. Like we needed a drummer who could do all that to a click. And man, in the early 2000s, it was <laughs> it was close to impossible to find someone who could handle that, at least in metal. I know that like in some other genres where, you know, drummers actually were serious. I, I don't think metal drummers were all that serious <laughs> at the beginning. Um, <laughs> it wasn't hard, but in metal, it was close to impossible. I feel like now finding a drummer who won't play to a click <laughs> is the challenge. Have you noticed that? Uh, yeah, mostly. 
all the bands who contact me, well, they, they especially the Finnish bands, they've re- read my blog and all the blog posts about writings about click track and how it kind of puts chains on the drummer. And uh, they ask me, like, is it true and uh, how is it going and so on. And uh, I tell them to kind of go to the rehearsal place, only get the uh, two bars of click in the very beginning of song. Because when you are recording, you need, uh, if you take like five takes or even ten takes, the tempo will be faster unless you have the two bars of metronome in the beginning of the song. Every time, then it starts the same, with the same tempo. And I tell them, go to the rehearsal place. And when the kind of slower part comes, like where you go, go on half feel, uh, like drop the tempo like 10 BPMs. See how it how it feels and kind of uh, play the part to get to get the tempo right and kind of I encourage the bands to kind of uh, make it more alive and that that seems to work usually <laughs> quite nicely because then they send me messages how how cool it's to play the drummer especially because he he's not listening to a click track but he's getting a chance to listen to other guys. You know, one thing I did on my band's final record was we definitely wanted to record to a click again because of all those backing tracks and stuff. But we also wanted it to feel like a Slayer record or Slipknot or, you know, Pantera, like, or Morbid Angel. Like, were those bands from the 90s and late 80s that had that loose but awesome timing? We wanted both. And so then the question was, well, how do you get both? Because this was 2010 and the idea of conforming the click to the, to the music wasn't, we weren't thinking that way. We were thinking, how do we get this tight to the click so that we can have everything else we need in there and then also have it fluctuate? You know, like when you go to a slower part, 10 BPM less or something, like when you have a fill that's leading into a blast beat. We want it to feel like one of those Dave Lombardo fills that speeds up or something. Like, how do we do that? And so what we did was we programmed the click tracks to fluctuate through the entire album. And I mean, through from, not just from riff to riff, but like even within the riffs. So like halfway through a fill or something, you know, bump it up 2.5 BPM, uh, things like that. Like maybe we want the riff to slow down gradually uh, so that it's 5 BPM slower by the time the riff is over than when it starts and just program that in. And it took forever and (laughs) it came out great. But like we, and the way that we found the tempos for it was through just playing the songs and finding the way they were supposed to feel tempo-wise, recording that, and then analyzing that. So, you know, if, if we were to play a song 15 times and we were to notice, okay, this part always slows down. It feels best when it slows down, you know, and start tapping that out and figure it out. Over the course of about five months, we figured out <laughs> all those tempos. And it, it worked, but man... It was really, really hard. The way you do it sounds easier. It's a lot easier. And I, I've been there. I've done, done that too. And for example, the Hate Crew Death Roll Journal of Burum album is a good example of that. Uh, we, we didn't do a five-month analyzing, and but we we did kind of... Uh, every part had their own tempo and we programmed the metronome and sometimes it gets faster and sometimes slower. But the, doing it without the metronome, like Lombardo did, 
I, I think that's easier and yeah, it sounds natural, but then again, especially easier when it comes to how much time you spend on, on stuff. And talking about spending time, like nowadays when bands are releasing albums, I don't know how it takes years between the albums. And yeah. like in the days, Led Zeppelin 1 and 2, they were released on the same year. Kind of uh, how to make the process as fast as possible to get the classic albums kind of done and not have to wait for 10 years for the next album. So tape is also good on that department. Yeah, the time between records used to be pretty short. Yes. However, though, one of the critiques on older records is for every one of those great records that we're talking about or great bands, you know, it's it, we, it's easy to point out Slayer and Pantera <laughs> for Slipknot, you know, because these are, these are classics. But I'm sure you remember in the 90s buying an album because you heard a song or two and then everything else is garbage. Oh, yeah. And you always heard that it's, well, they had to rush into the studio. They toured for a year and a half and then had two months to write the album and then all this pressure to move fast, move fast, mm. prevented them from being able to do their best work. Yes. So that I feel, you know, so while I agree with you about the speed being important at the same time, I also remember how many times I felt like I wasted my money <laughs> and was pissed off buying CDs and being like, holy shit, there's 10 songs and eight of them suck. Exactly. Yeah, that, that's definitely not, not what we want. Then again, when the band is on, on the road, they should also spend the time on writing new songs and kind of sometimes when you get uh, get the creative phase going, I always tell the bands who I work with that take advantage of it. Sometimes if, if you manage to compose a song in a day or maybe even two or three songs every day for a month or two, use it. Compose as much as possible because the dry season is coming. And then when you try to force something out, it, it will not sound that great. So also it's good to kind of have as many good songs done when you get the creative phase going. Yeah, so take advantage of when you're feeling it. Yes. I mean, that's the theory for why so many bands would have great debut albums and then shitty albums after that <laughs> is they had the time to put them together years and then they only had a couple of months i believe it was mick gordon the composer i had on the podcast once who said that uh amateurs wait for inspiration professionals get the job done <laughs> and i agree with that however i also agree that you have to be very aware of when you can write your best stuff or produce your best stuff or whatever it is that requires the inspiration you have to be aware of when that is and then be ready to capture it. Exactly. Yeah, you can't. But at the same time, that doesn't mean that you should just never work when you're not feeling it. Because first of all, one thing, and I'm sure you've noticed that sometimes you might not be feeling it and then you sit down to work and within 15 minutes, you're feeling it. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> so, you never, never, never know when the inspiration comes. Exactly. You never know. So it's important to give yourself as many chances as possible to let it happen. However, how the hell does a band really find the time to write on tour? Because I tried doing that and it was really fucking hard. And I know you've toured. Uh, so how do you see that happening? From 98 until 2002, I was also mixing Children of Boredom live and 
Yeah, sometimes when, when the inspiration comes, we just we were laughing all the time. That was one of the uh, rare bands didn't have any any conflicts within the band, and they they just had a blast. And they they knew that the work, uh, the music was kind of the top priority. And many many times on the road, I saw the kind of magic happen or something. The inspiration struck, and yeah, then you have to take advantage of the moment. And they did. You know, I think a lot of people will get those moments of inspiration and then not do anything about it because they didn't decide that it's the priority or it's kind of inconvenient. And I've noticed that there's some people who, when they decide it's their priority, they'll stop everything in order to follow that inspiration. One thing that I used to do when I was a guitarist and with my band was, I was the main writer in the band, but the band also was a very technical band and so I needed to maintain and you know improve a guitar and it was hard to balance between getting really good at guitar writing like 85% of the music doing production work pretty much managing the band you know it's a lot of different stuff yeah and so I've always done a lot of different things like now is no different like you know two podcasts then the riff hard site the nail of the mix URM like it's I've always done a lot of stuff but the way that I did it in order to be able to capture inspiration was I would start by practicing guitar and uh, trying to get better. And then there would be some days where, you know, you're practicing and it's 30 minutes in and you're getting warmed up and then suddenly, bam, ideas are happening. And I would stop practicing and start working on those ideas immediately. Mm -hmm. Now, I know people who they'll be practicing and then the creative side will come on and then they'll ignore it. (laughs) because they decided that they needed to keep on practicing. And then they'll go write music at a specified time when it's time to write music and they'll have a hard time with it sometimes. Sometimes they'll write cool stuff, but other times they'll have a real hard time with it when they had all these opportunities to create great songs but just decided not to because they had to finish practicing their scales. And so I made the decision to always follow the inspiration when it hit. I mean, I would also sit down and write at predetermined times, but if I was practicing and the inspiration hit, fuck practicing. Exactly. Work on writing. (laughs) It's all about prioritizing. And that's that's the way you should do because uh, what is more important than getting the inspiration and getting new music, music done? Nothing. Yeah. It's an interesting thing because I do agree with people who say that writing is a discipline, right? It's a, you make it a habit and you don't wait for inspiration or motivation. You just do it. But I also know that the best stuff comes from inspiration. Exactly. And so you have to find a way to balance the two. Words of wisdom once again. Well, thank you. So (laughs) I'd like to talk a little bit about your touring and why you stopped. I stopped too. It was one of the best decisions I've ever made. So I'm just (laughs) curious for you what, what that what that was all about. Why? Yeah, completely understand it. I, I started like very early on, like you know, on 1993 when I started the studio work, I also started the live sound sound work. And my first car was a truck. My second car was a bus. And we did all the Children of Bodom shows using my gear in Finland. And I was not only mixing, but also I was the tour manager, bus driver, putting up the PA system and lights and setting up the backline for the band and whatnot, like all, all, the, all the jobs possible. 
Uh, when we were touring abroad, of course, it was only only mixing, so it was pretty easy. But then again, huge loans from the bank uh, for to pay pay the studio. We have two fully equipped big studios in the, in the Astia Studio facility. And when we are touring, it's a little bit more co- complicated than harder compared to sitting in the control room for ten hours. And more you did it, then I had to do make a decision that. Uh, Touring didn't bring in enough money and touring was like a way to, well, there was alcohol involved and it was hard work and it was hard partying. So one of the best decisions in my life was to kind of concentrate fully on the studio work. Yeah, man, the touring lifestyle is not healthy. (laughs) Yeah. It's kind of amazing because I never, you know, I was never an alcoholic or anything like that, but I definitely drank on the road. I don't not drink now, but I don't really drink very often. The party days are have been long over. But one thing I noticed is that what was normal on the road alcohol-wise was completely different than what's normal in real life. So I would come home from a tour and then hang out with some friends that have normal lives and our approach to alcohol was very, very different. And again, like I was not addicted to alcohol. It's just the culture on the road is way more unhealthy than I think people realize. Like I remember sharing a bus with this legendary, quote unquote, legendary metal vocalist. It was an older guy who was an alcoholic for a long time. And uh, this was his clean tour. And so no liquor or beer was allowed on the bus, but uh, he still had wine delivered and he would drink four bottles of wine a day. And that was uh, his... Clean tour. Yeah, that was the clean tour. <laughs> Whoa. Yeah, yeah. Completely understand. It's completely different world when you are touring. It has nothing to do with the reality. And consider the time spent on waiting and waiting and waiting and traveling and waiting and waiting. That's like... Endless. Yeah. And so that time spent waiting, I think you can make the decision. You can make the decision. All right. There's going to be a lot of boring shit. I need to have a plan for what I'm going to do at that time. So, you know, some people, I know this one guy, do you remember that band Chimera? Yeah. For people who are too young to remember, they were a pretty big metal band in the mid 2000s. They're sample keyboard guy, Chris Spicuza. We toured with them a couple times and we're still friends to this day. And I remember that he would always be just working in the green room on his web design stuff. He decided he was going to learn how to do web design. He was never partying. He was always just working on that. We'd arrive to the gig at 11 a.m. or something and they would play at 11 p.m. and he would spend all that downtime just working on this stuff. And now he's a, that's what he does. He's very well paid and made a serious career out of it. And I've seen a few people do that. Like, okay, I have all this downtime. I'm going to use it to practice guitar. Uh, those are the, the ones who maintain their improvements. And then I've known people who did not know what to do with the boredom. And so got into trouble with drugs and alcohol and bad behavior and that never works out. Did you feel like the lifestyle was just incompatible with you? 
It depends a little bit. At the time when we were touring, there was no mobile phones, for example. And we really had to spend the time together because there was nothing else to do. So uh, that was also kind of which was cool, on my opinion, about touring. And uh, I wouldn't miss uh, uh, because we were a family, like like every touring, touring band with the crew. And so it was kind of difficult for me to kind of leave the tour life in that sense. But then again, uh, don't miss the alcohol and don't miss the staying staying up at nights and hope that <laughs> answers the question. It does. You know, it's not all bad. <laughs> like, yeah. uh, I think that that aspect of it is really cool. It's like you and this crew against the world. It does kind of become a family. I'm talking about this stuff for people who are wanting to do that with their futures. I know that there's a lot of people listening who are trying to get their bands signed or they want to do sound on the road or whatever. And what I really hope for them is the ones who will end up doing it is that they go into it knowing this, knowing that there's going to be the opportunity to make really bad decisions or the opportunity to have a lot of time to do something really good, get really good at something or learn something. Uh, There's, there's a lot of time involved. So That said, we have some questions from listeners for you that I would like to ask you. Um, A lot of these we already covered, but some of them we didn't. So, man, this guy, Gerardo Cervantes, has like five questions. He's very interested in what you have to say. So, start with this. How do you approach the vocal production between melodic death metal and black metal? differently. I don't think I approach it very differently. Well, I don't know how other producers do it, but um, I always start with the text. And it doesn't matter if we are, if I'm recording a gospel band or a black metal band. How the text is going, the vocalist must convince me. And if I'm convinced, the audience will be convinced. And if there is something how Satan will, I don't know, sacrifice, whatever the text will be, uh, I have to feel that the vocalist means what he's saying or she's saying. And the very same when it's the gospel band and they're singing some positive stuff about Jesus and whatnot. Uh, I I must feel like when, when that person is singing that I, I want to be part of this church or <laughs> this <laughs> this religion. I think that's that's always been my approach, being as convincing as possible. So the authenticity is what matters. That's what you're looking for. It needs to feel real. Yeah, and when it's fake, if, if if we are recording and we feel I don't believe what that dude is saying, then I don't think anyone else will believe. And we need to kind of get to the no matter what the style or the text, but it must be convincing. Yeah, I think that what it takes to be a great vocalist is very similar psychologically to what it takes to be a great actor. Yes, for instance, even though an actor is saying something that somebody else wrote. Well, I mean, sometimes vocalists sing something that somebody else wrote, but the difference is that, you know, the actor is uh, involved in a story that's not real and you want the vocalist to be communicating something that that has some reality to it, to them. But what's the same is that the great actors, it doesn't matter if the dude's dressed up like Batman, which is fake, <laughs> you need to believe you need to believe that it's real. 
you need to believe them. And yeah, you need to believe the vocalists. That's what makes a great actor. And I think that's what makes a great vocalist too. Like, uh, like I think about John Davis from Corn and that first Corn album where he's crying and reliving trauma. It's not the most amazing vocal performance ever pitch wise. I don't even know what the pitches were in it, but it's so fucking real that that's why people latched onto it, in my opinion. Exactly. And uh, imagine Kurt Cobain, if his vocals yeah. were auto-tuned to a correct pitch, <laughs> uh, I don't think they would have sold any records. Uh, no. Not at all. But uh, when, when it's as authentic as possible and the person singing is meaning every single word with every cell in in the body, then it can't be any better. I hope that Gerardo <laughs> answers the question correctly, but yeah, uh, my approach is very simple. <laughs> well, I think that's a great answer because if he was looking for a technical answer, like I approach black metal with this gear and melodic death metal with this gear and this mic and that mic, They're missing the point. One thing I, I, I must add in the vocal booth, uh, I have some photos on my blog about this. When I was recording uh, Impel Nazarene band and the vocalist Mika Luttinen, oh, he, he's not singing, he's a screamer. He told me that I need a wedge in the vocal booth. And I was like, what? You, a wedge? Yes, a wedge from the live stage. And I, I told him that, no, 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 it, it, it will be the headphones which we are using and not, not any witches. Oh, oh, a monitor Mon witch. I thought you meant like a witch, like the wicked witch from the Wizard of Oz. I was like, wow, <laughs> that's extreme. <laughs> yeah, would be kind of uh, within the norm with the band. But yeah, a, a monitor witch. And it was a strange question, but of course I delivered. And he told me if he will be shouting, standing on two feet, Uh, like on the normal standing position, he can shout only for 15 minutes and then his back will be hurting so much that he won't be doing any vocals uh, for the rest of the day. But if he has the monitor wedge where he can place one foot, he gets to the correct position and he can scream all day, all day. So ever since that, uh, I've had the monitor wedge on the vocal booth and I instruct every vocalist to put one foot on the monitor bench and then kind of imagine themselves on stage. That helps. That's great. I think that that's always the philosophy that I've taken for headphone mixes, for instance, is give them what they need in order to feel like a rock star. Like when they hear themselves, whatever it takes, they need to feel the way they want to feel on stage when a show is going great to give them that confidence so that they can do what they need to do. Exactly. And for example, with Alexi Laiho, when we were recording Turn of Boredom vocals, he always wanted to have the delay in the headphones. And mm -hmm. that kind of made him feel like he was, uh, like when I was mixing uh, mixing them live, we always, I sent the delay from the front of house mixing console to his monitor bench. And he, so he would kind of be more excited because I used a lot of vocal delays. And also during recording, we were using that to get him more pumped up. Yeah. It works. Yeah. Okay, well, um, on the Children of Bodom tangent, he has a question about them. So he says, how much did you need to work on the arrangements in Hate Breeder or 
did the band come up with that before the recording? So that was the second album, the green one. We did uh, demo stuff with them between some live shows and they played as they kind of had imagined it. But when the kind of album recording started, we did a lot of small tweakings and some parts. I did some more, uh, kind of uh, was involved more, and on some parts less. And uh, I can't recall exactly what we did, but for example, lots of the har- a lot of harmony parts were created in the studio between me, Alexi Laiho, and Alexander Kuoppala, the guitar players at the time. Got it. And for example, the solos, especially on Hate Crew Death Roll, uh, we did a lot of stuff in the studio, kind of like Alexi Laiho might be warming up and he was doing his... Um, How would, how would it translate? It would be distracting the spider uh, manure, maneuver on the <laughs> guitar neck. And I was listening to him warm up and I was like, whoa, that's that's uh, both sounds and looks so cool. What is that? And he was like, oh, it's just warm up lick. And it ended up on the album. And uh, lots of that kind of, kind of catching the moment kind of thing. We had no idea what's going to happen. And then something happens and it kind of escalates from there. Somebody gets an idea and another one lifts it up a kind of couple of notes and the third person comes in and it kind of escalates. And that that's what you hear on the albums. Great. Scott Bennett is wondering, what do you think it was about Children of Bodom that resonated with so many people? And was it special to be part of their story and legacy? It was super special. I, I recall the very first time when uh, Alexi Laiho and the drummer Jaska Ratikainen arrived to me. It was 90, maybe five, and or even 94. I can't recall the year, but I recall the event. They came from, I don't know, 150 miles away from the capital of Finland, Helsinki, and they knocked on my studio door, which at the time was located in the basement of a local church uh, at the band rehearsal place. And uh, they told me that we are from the capital. We have a metal band. Show us what you've got. And I showed them some some of the recent stuff that I'd done and they loved it and they booked a session. And when, when they arrived to make the, uh, at the time they were not called Children of Bodom, the name was In Earth. And uh, I did the second album for the band called Ubiquitous Absence of Remission. And during the recording, I was like, whoa, this is so cool. These guys are so cool and the music has some special element to it. It would be so cool to do more this kind of stuff. So sometimes wishes do come true. Very cool. Charlie Williamson is wondering, how would you say the European metal sound differed from what was happening in the U.S. during the 90s and 2000s in terms of production? When I was in Taiwan with a Finnish metal band called Norther, I was mixing mixing them live there. The local promoter, after the show, we, we started talking and he told me that he has this kind of theory about metal music and how in Sweden... They they are a little bit more south compared to Finland. And they have ABBA, the pop band from the 70s. And mm-hmm. most, not, not all, but kind of in general, uh, the Swedish music is very happy. It's kind of, it has the positive vibe to it. And when we go more north to Norway... We get the burning the churches, black metal, like the as dark as possible because they don't get to see sunlight that much, he said. And Finland is somewhere in between and it kind of has the black metal elements of the Nor- Norwegian, uh, like, like w- w- when the sun doesn't come up at all. So it's super dark and super cold. And then again, we have a little bit of the uh, south side with the Swedish melodiness. 
So it's kind of a strange mix. And he, he saw it as a geographical thing, um, kind of most, which I found very interesting. That makes sense, though. I feel like different scenes end up having different characteristics to them. Yeah. I mean, much like much like Seattle had its own sound yeah. for grunge. Then there were characteristics to those bands that even though, you know, Soundgarden doesn't sound like Nirvana, <laughs> yeah. doesn't sound like Alice in Chains, they still had something in common that helped you identify them as from there Yeah, in that time. Okay, so question again from... Gerardo, which is, uh, what was your approach when working with Behexen and Horna? And also, how did you get the guitar tone in Behexen's Ritual Satanum? Oh, that's so, so long time ago. Unfortunately, I have no idea which guitar. How long I'm, ago? Uh, in the late 90s, maybe. Oh, how are you supposed to remember that? <laughs> <laughs> but I, what I do remember is that, for example, some of the Horna stuff, uh, we were recording the whole album in a day. And it was all live recording. And after we recorded on the, on the very first take, the whole album, uh, then we recorded all the vocals, you know, most likely on one one take from beginning to end. We did some doubling, some back vocal, and in one day the album was done. And I don't think Behexen used much any much more time. So it was done very fast. The band had their tone set up. We, we might have used the same guitar amp which we used on the first Children of Boodum album, the uh, PV EVH uh, 5150, uh, some special, special system. But other than that, unfortunately, I have no memory whatsoever. Only thing which I do remember is that it was not done during mixing. I just captured what the bands, how the bands sounded. Yeah. Well, okay. So speaking of t- of gear, um, Jay Rusi is wondering what is your personal favorite starting point for, you know, amp cabin mic selections for high gain metal tones, not in terms of like the settings, but like, do you have certain go-tos that are a great starting point? Usually I request that the band will come in with their gear so that we mm-hmm. would not be using the gear which I have at the studio because I do not want uh, bands who I work with to sound like me. Uh, I will rather adapt and kind of find what's their strong points and lift it up and kind of make them sound as much them as possible. And Marshall JCM 800 is is definitely one of the best ones. I have very good modified version, which sounds pretty okay. And we we always do comparisons. We we never do, go like we will only use this one. When the band brings their gear, we will test with the stuff which we have at the studio, and we will choose the best one. Usually, it's the combination. It's like one guitar will be done with the amp they will bring, and the second guitar will be done with the amp we have at the studio, for example. And it will be usually on the basic Marshall four times twelve inch speakers. And the microphone, I've, I've experimented with lots of microphones and lots of mic positions. And I have come to the conclusion that the best way to capture as authentic guitar sound as possible is to have a Shure SM58 with the grill removed. And you take the microphone a little bit less than two feet away from the cabinet, the speaker, and that's it. Boom. Simple. No EQ, no compressor. If the sound is too uh, dark, uh, you will tweak the amp. 
if it sounds great in the room, but it doesn't sound right in the control room, you will move the mic. And usually I don't have to move any mics. It's like on the first go, we get exactly the same sound with how the amp sounds in the, in the room, how it sounds in the control room. Great. Will Duff says, with your philosophy of focusing on analog recording, how has your process evolved over the years with the improvements in digital technology? I think that what he means is since, you know, you do the analog thing and uh, you made the switch to primarily analog in 2017, uh, is there any aspect of digital that, that is still part of your workflow? I use 486 old PC computer from 1990s for the VCA automation, but it's not the digital audio, but I have the automation on the fader, mutant fader automation, which is pretty nice to have on an analog disc. A 486, wow. Yeah, that's like <laughs> pretty wow. old computer. Still works. And when it dies, I would just uh, recap it and it will work again. It, it's like, uh, that's so cool thing about the old, old equipment. They just keep on working. Other than that, that's not even kind of something which would be there. I, I have the option to sync the tape machine to door if it's needed, but I just don't see any point why. So only place where the digital like really comes into the signal path is after mixing. Once I, I record on two inch 24 track, I mix to quarter inch uh, uh, stereo tape deck and from there I will uh, take the stereo file, uh, stereo sound and kind of convert it to digital. I will also cut with the razor the vinyl masters which will, will be full analog signal path releases and uh, especially nowadays we've also been doing the cassette master on the type 4 metal tape. <laughs> I mean, so basically at the end, at the very end, it goes into like Pro Tools or whatever? Yeah, it goes to okay. it goes to the digital and I will make the mastering using digital equipment for CD and streaming streaming services. Is it Pro Tools or just your, a standard DAW? Actually, I've been a digital performer, man. Oh, wow. That's what I learned on. Oh, cool. I still use 4.61 and I still use my Macintosh, which is my A-Studio computer, What is the 2004 model still working. I have a spare when it dies uh, and yeah, <laughs> older. I, I don't even know what the operating system I have, but uh, let, let me tell you, it's old. It's like ancient. Amazing. I, I tried the Digital Performer 5, I tried the 6, and they both sounded like crap. No offense, uh, <laughs> Moto guys. But I noticed the difference. So I reverted back to 4.61 4 and I've stayed there since. Man, I was just talking to somebody the other day wondering who uses Digital Performer now. Because he used, the person I was talking to is a guy named Michael Keane. He's in the band The Faceless. He, uh, He's used Digital Performer forever. <laughs> okay, and cool. Digital Performer is what I learned on. I had to switch to Pro Tools when when I uh, started working at somebody else's studio, but uh, Digital Performer was my thing till about 2010. <laughs> and I still think it's a great DAW. Definitely. And so especially the older models were so simple. There was nothing extra. Once again, we go back to the limited options you have. Yeah, it's... Uh, I mean, man, it really is true that limitations uh, help. I, I really do believe that. I mean, having some options is good, but too many options leads to analysis paralysis. Yeah, exactly. There was one question about the children of Bono and if it felt special. And I, I need to add 
when I was working with Children of Boredom on uh, Something Wild, the debut album, uh, we were completely sure that it no one would love the album. No, no one would ever buy the album. Like, kind of like uh, that it would be way too black metal for the melodic metal uh, fans and it would be way too melodic for the black metal fans. And still, we didn't care because we thought it was the best music ever. And we, we loved every minute of doing it. We loved every note on the album. And still, the expectation was like there would be no sales at all. Uh, you guys were wrong. <laughs> Definitely. <laughs> so wrong. That's honestly what we thought. We we even called it the, the crappy album, like in the, the, the shitty album, if you can say that on, on the podcast. <laughs> that was the nickname for the album. <laughs> Use any language you fucking want. I remember hearing them back in the day and thinking, I don't know how to class, like, I don't really care about classifying bands, but I remember thinking, I don't know how to classify them because... Like there's this element to them that's super evil. And then there's this element to them that's like super melodic and like, I don't want to say happy, but super melodic and like pretty. And I felt like it's not enough of one thing and not enough of the other. And so there's going to be people that, uh, that hate it. And I think that first of all, the band was badass. And uh, I think Alexi was so charismatic and mm. badass at guitar and everything he did that the classification didn't matter. Exactly. And he he was so many times even even especially during the early years asked what genre are there uh, they and he always replied we are metal. Yeah, that's a great answer. Plain and simple because what does it matter? Kind of like if you're black or white or Chinese or whatever you are, it doesn't matter. Because <laughs> it changes nothing to say that oh we are this metal or dark dark gothic blah blah blah. It's metal. It's it's music. It's simple as that. Yeah. I mean and Not just that, it was badass. Yeah. <laughs> I only saw him live once, uh, but he was so great, like such a great performer, so much charisma, and he's so good at guitar. It was uh, very impressive. I still remember it was like 2003 or something. Oh, cool. That early on. Yeah. Yeah, it, it was that early on, but it was clear that Um, I was watching one of the greats, for sure. Mm -hmm. Well, I think this is a good place to uh, end the episode. I want to thank you for taking the time to hang out and be so generous with your answers. It's been a pleasure talking to you. Likewise, and thank you very much for having me. It's been a pleasure. Anytime, man. All right, then. Another URM podcast episode in the bag. Please remember to share our episodes with your friends as well as post them to your Facebook and Instagram or any social media you use. Please tag me at AL Levy URM Audio at URM Academy and of course, tag our guests as well. I mean, they really do appreciate it. In addition, do you have any questions for me about anything? Email them to me at al at urm.academy. That's E-Y-A-L at urm.academy. And use the subject line, answer me, al. All right, then. Till next time. Happy mixing. You've been listening to the Unstoppable Recording Machine Podcast. To ask us questions, make suggestions, and interact, visit urm.academy and press the podcast link today.